Okay, let's begin with an opening prayer here. Let's all gather our hearts and our minds together and begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we open up our hearts and our minds, we gather them together, we collect them, we place them before you, we ask your Holy Spirit to illumine, to enlighten, to guide, and to inspire us that we might come to know your Son, Jesus Christ, and live according to his teaching all that much better. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, tonight um, we'll focus on the story of the three men visiting Abraham in Genesis chapter 18. And I think it would be a good idea if we had someone volunteer to read. Maybe we can get two volunteers. We'll, we'll split it in half and we'll have one person read half the first half and one person read the second half. Anybody want? Okay. Sure. Why don't you go to verse... Um, uh, why don't you go to verse 15? Chapter 18? It's chapter 18? Yep, verses 1 through 15. We've got space up here up front. Cookies too. Cookies are up front too. Okay, go ahead. Nice and loud. Alright, chapter 18. Abraham's visitors. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the Terebinth of Marah, as he sat in the entrance of his tent, while the day was growing hot. Looking up, he saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he ran from the entrance of the tent to greet them, and bowing to the ground. He said, Sir, if I may ask you this favor, please do not go on past your servant. Let some water be brought, that you may bathe your feet and then rest yourselves under the tree. Now that you have come this close to your servant, let me bring you a little food, that you may refresh yourselves, and afterward you may go on your way. Very well, they replied. Do as you have said. Abraham hastened into the tent and told Sarah, Quick, three seeds of fine flour, knead it and make rolls. He ran to the herd, picked out a tender, choice steer, and gave it to a servant, who quickly prepared it. Then he got some curds and milk, as well as the steer that had been prepared, and set these before them. And he waited on them under the tree while they ate. Where is your wife Sarah? they asked him. There, in the tent, he replied. One of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah will then have a son. Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent just behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and Sarah had stopped having her womanly periods. So Sarah laughed to herself and said, Now that I am so withered and my husband is so old, I am still to have sexual pleasure. But the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I really bear a child? old as I am. Is anything too marvelous for the Lord to do? At the appointed time, about this time next year, I will return to you, and Sarah will have a son, because she was afraid 
Sarah dissembled, saying, I didn't laugh. But he said, yes, you did. <laughs> okay, so why don't we have someone read from verse 16 to verse um, just 22. It's really important that you read 22, but not 23. Just so 16 to 22, inclusive of 22. Nancy, go ahead. Abraham intercedes for Sodom. The men set out from there and looked down toward Sodom. Abraham was walking with them to see them on their way. The Lord reflected, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Now that he is to become a great and populous nation, and all the nations of the earth are to find blessing in him. Indeed, I have singled him out that he may direct his sons and his posterity to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord may carry into effect for Abraham the promise he made about him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin so grave, that I must go down and see whether or not their actions fully correspond to the cry against them that comes to me. I mean to find out. While the two men walked on farther towards Sodom, the Lord remained standing before Abraham. Okay, very good. Well, if we hear uh, those two different translations now, so Charlie, what do you have even? NAB, is that what it is? Huh? What translation is yours? Um, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, the New American Bible. Okay. Yeah. So if you, if you listen and you look at the different translations, it's very interesting to see how the translators have sort of made their decisions and navigated them themselves through these different words. And every decision they make does have a bearing on the interpretation of the text. So, for example, I noticed in the New American Bible, in verse uh, 10, it says, uh, one of them said, I will surely return to you in the spring. Is that what the NAV says in verse 10? I will surely return to you about this time next year. But does it say one of them said? One of them. One of them. Yeah, one of them said. That's really significant. I don't know where they what where they get that from, but okay. So that that would really change a lot of meanings, as opposed to if it said the Lord said, "I will surely return to you in the spring." So because we're going to see that this whole passage and kind of the point, the Christological and Trinitarian points that I'm going to be drawing out of this depend on the relationship between the Lord and the three men. So it's important to kind of you know get those get those down. Uh, and then the other one that was interesting is it says, Sir, um, in verse 3, right? Does the NAB say, Sir, in verse 3? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? As opposed to, My Lord. Mm-hmm. Yours says, Lord, without My Lord, right? It says, Lord. It says, Lord. Okay, that's probably the Dewey Reigns that you have in the Confraternity Bible. This is 1948, yeah, for Yeah, it's a Confraternity. So, uh, yeah, these are all, uh, it's, it's very... Uh, you know, these little words make a difference, and I think we'll see how, how uh, that's the case as we go on here. So here we are in our fifth study, Abraham and the Genesis Annunciation. Now, what do you think of when you think of the, the Annunciation? Right, Gabriel coming to Mary, right? Announcing to her the birth of Christ. So there is a kind of, believe it or not, there's a sort of a foreshadowing of the Annunciation in this story right here. All right, And uh, there's some language parallels between the story in Luke of the Annunciation and this passage, so that we can we can know that Luke is is drawing some of the language and some of the themes from this passage from Genesis 18. 
So we've got Abraham and the Genesis Annunciation. Now, has anybody ever seen this icon? Who, who has seen it? Who has seen it? Okay. It's actually quite, quite a famous uh, icon. It's by a Russian iconographer by the name of Rublev from the 14th century or 13th century, so it's very old. And then this icon has been copied over and over and over again, so you see a lot of modern renditions of it and recent renditions of it. And uh, it's a picture of the three angels visiting Abraham. But the title of it is The Trinity. Okay, so Rublev is drawing from a very traditional Orthodox and Catholic interpretation of Genesis 18 and what's going on there. So the first question we, we pose is, what is the relationship between the Lord and Abraham's three mysterious visitors? So if we go to the opening passage here, and the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the tent of his door in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men stood in front of him. And the word translated men is, is ish, which is, I mean, it's about as good as the translation as you could possibly get is to say man. All right? Ish is man, isha is woman. So three men. All right? And they look like human beings. Seems like they're human beings. But it just says, it just got done saying the Lord appeared to him. The Lord appeared to him, and then suddenly, the next thing you know, it's three men are standing there. Okay? So the question goes, well, how is it that the Lord is standing there? Or how is it that the Lord has appeared when you have these three men? And the different uh, interpreters over the eras, I mean, over the past 2,000 years, have kind of, or even older, meaning the past maybe two, 2,200, 2,300 years, have approached this in three different ways. And I'm going to argue for one way. I think it's I think it's the better way. But the the third way that I argue for kind of encompasses the second way, and also draws strengths uh, from the first way as well. So the first way is a a, a very traditional Jewish interpretation. The Jewish uh, rabbis from say maybe the third, fourth, fifth, sixth centuries A.D. How they understood this was, and you could go into a synagogue to this day, and this is how they'll interpret it is when it says the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of memories, they understand the Lord as something like what they call the Shekinah, which is like this kind of luminous cloud, like this glorious cloud that appeared on Mount Sinai or that overshadows Christ on Mount Sinai. I'm sorry, on Mount Tabor when Christ is being transfigured. That cloud that overshadows him, the Jews have, that's a traditional Jewish understanding of the presence of God, and they call it the Shekinah. Uh, so the Jewish uh, interpreters, the ancient rabbis say, well, the Lord appeared, when it says the Lord appeared, it means that the Shekinah was present. Okay? And then there were three men, and the three men are three angels. So that's how they interpret. They have the Shekinah and the three angels. So that's a rabbinical interpretation. Another interpretation, which probably has some Jewish precedence, but many of the ancient church fathers also interpreted it this way, is that the three men, of the three men, one of them is uh, the Lord, and the other two are angels. So you have the Lord and two angels. So that would be like the second way of interpreting this passage. And then the third way of interpreting this passage, the one that I argue for, I think it's the most uh, accurate, is that the three men at the most literal level are actually angels. They're created intellects, three created intellects, 
uh, angelic intellects, okay? So defining an intellect in the very traditional Catholic way, I'm sorry, defining an angel in a very traditional Catholic way is it's an intellect. An angel is an intellect. It's not, the angels do, do not have bodies. They're not corporeal. They don't exist in space. Um, okay, it's very abstract to think about, but that's, that's the traditional Catholic understanding of an angel. So when we have images of angels with wings and stuff like that, it's just, that's our way of, of putting, understanding these created beings in our terms. Okay? But we don't believe that literally they have bodies or wings or anything like that. We believe that they're pure intellectual beings that just exist. And they're not in space. And there's no, yeah, there isn't gender. They're not gender because they're not embodied. So, um, but when they appear in the Bible, they always appear as in masculine form. So, and there's probably some significance to that. Uh, but you'll see in our art, most of it's lots of times in our art uh, tradition, angels are male. But then we do have, I think, in the 19th century, you can see some female renditions, some angels appearing in feminine form. Or like uh, if you go to upstairs the, by the, our tabernacle, we've got two angels flying into the tabernacle, and they look a little bit um, kind of like unisex or something. Like you don't, you know, they're kind of like men, but they could be women, and you don't know. Okay, so but and that's probably a sense of trying to capture this angel that doesn't have a, a gender. All right. So that's what angels are. But when angels appear to human beings, they can appear in a vision. That's just a purely subjective reality in the mind of the person that's experiencing it. Or they can appear externally such that you could capture them on a, on a camera if you wanted to. And when they do that, the understanding is that uh, they basically are they're gathering created particles, material particles from the surrounding area. And they're creating an image. A very sophisticated, like um, piece of art, basically. It's an image, but they're not really embodied. They just appear that way, okay? And maybe they're solid. Maybe they're not solid. You know, there's just different ways of how they choose to appear. So, but the 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 visual aspect of them is being created by the fact that it's actual. You know, what water molecules in the air? I mean, literally, like physical things that are being assembled to create an image. So that's how angels would, would appear in an apparition. Unlike Our Lady, if Mary appears in an apparition, she's embodied. She has her body right now. Uh, her and Christ are the only two uh, human beings who are in glorified bodies. And so when Mary appears, she appears in a bodily form in her actual body. And uh, so, so literally, so the third interpretation is that these three men are actually angels but that they represent God. And all three of them represent God. All three of them represent God. And so there's a foreshadowing of the Trinity. Okay. And we'll see how that, how that makes sense as we go on. So it, there's a lot of passages in the, in the Old Testament where an angel shows up. So, for example, next week we're going to read Genesis 22 when Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac. And the angel of the Lord... Shows up and says, "Quick, don't, or wait, don't don't kill him." Now I know that you are obedient to me, and so the angel is speaking in the person of God. But then, as he continues to speak, he says, "And I swear, thus says the Lord." So now it seems like okay, now it's an angel speaking on behalf of God. So it's very mysterious because in the Old Testament, it's 
When an angel shows up, sometimes you think it's God, but if you it's more if you read a more subtle level, you realize actually it's an angel speaking on behalf of God and representing God. Um, so we'll go to the next one here. So let's we move on in the text here, Genesis eighteen two to three. So Abraham he he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and he said, "My Lord." Okay, in the singular. This is this translation here is in the singular. Uh, and the Hebrew word that it translates is Adonai. And Adonai can be translated in a lot of different ways. That's what kind of is difficult about it. But translating it, my Lord, is a perfectly legitimate translation. And I think it's actually the best translation. It really should be translated, my Lord, in the singular. <coughs> if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass by your servants. Now, we might want to ask ourselves an initial question. Do you guys think in your own reading of this passage and then our reading of it tonight, I mean, this is just a question. That, uh, you know, I, I, I think I've got an opinion of my own, but if you disagree with me, that's fine. It's not you're right or wrong one way or the other. Is Do you think that Abraham understands that there's... Is, do you think that he thinks these are just three men? Or do you think that he thinks there's something else going on here, that they're angels or it's God? or What do you think Abraham's knowledge is? What is, what is his consciousness at? What do you think? I think because he was from way closer to um, Adam Eve's time than we are, he had an understanding of the Trinity that we didn't have. Okay. Just say it was like a divine type of understanding. Uh, okay, sure. All right, thought. yeah. Okay, that, that could be. So possibly Abraham does have some kind of a prophetic intuition that, that it's actually, this is God manifesting himself to him and being represented through these three men. All right, does anybody else have a, have a different take on it? What do you think, Carol? I think he probably thinks they're probably angels. I mean, he was in such a hurry to, to serve them and, and right. do the right thing for right. them, and he must have felt they were special. Okay, okay. What do you think, Zach? Well, they go on and in uh, chapter 19, and the two angels go to Lot. Yeah. And he doesn't recognize them. Lot doesn't. Probably no. not. Okay. Surely... Why can't it just be that he recognizes Jesus and there are two servants with him and he says, oh, well, you know, if you're with God, they must be in communion <coughs> with the Lord. Yeah. They should be so served you're, also. Okay, so and what you're see, doing is you're promoting that second interpretation, which yeah. is fine. So so you're reading it as one of the three individuals is this kind of pre-incarnation of Jesus Christ and the other two are angels. But, but the question that I'm addressing, though, is what is Abraham's consciousness at this initial scene? Does Abraham think that this is some pre-incarnation of God and then two angels, or what is what is he thinking? I don't know that he could know. Okay. All right, so maybe he doesn't know. All right. I, I have a question. Yeah. It, could it be, you know, I haven't heard the Holy Spirit come up, and could it actually be the Holy Spirit and two angels, or do you think it's actually God? I, is would be the only question I have. Yeah. But I would lean towards either God or the Holy Spirit and two angels. Okay, so you have a variation of that second interpretation. All right. I, li- I like the Jewish interpretation where they seen some kind of presence. Yeah. So they know they were people. They were something like God. Okay. That's my... Okay. That would that be the Jewish? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. So something apart from the angels, there's some kind of a glorious and the Lord appeared. Right? So yeah. And then I think they surmised, or he surmised, yeah. that they were sent by the Lord. Okay, all right. 
So I, I'm going to probably differ with all you guys, but that's fine. You know, actually, this is good. I really want this. And if I go and I try to persuade, and I got, I, I mean, I put this together with like a logical progression, and if you're not persuaded by it, that's fine. It really, it, this is just all good stuff to kind of get in. It's a way of really wrapping your minds and your hearts around the scriptures. So we can totally have different uh, uh, takes on this. It's totally fine. Charlie, were you going to say something? No, it was kind of, because what that gentleman had said, because I remember reading the second part over here, that, you know, that there was two angels that were sent to life. So right. I was, when I read it, my interpretation was yeah. that because you know when it starts off and it says it's the Lord, yeah. and then all the two angels went. So you have the Lord and two out, angels. Sound, sound. Yeah, that's how. So it, that's the second interpretation, right? That's how. That's how I was. That yeah. the Lord just sent those, made that deal with uh, right. with Abraham, right? And his when his wife, right? And so that's a, sent the two forward. And yeah, it's a it's a, a prima, prima facie good interpretation. Yeah. Okay, it makes sense. Um, what I also, but then let's try to make that more precise though. So what we have then. Is what we have. What's called a theophany is a, a phino in Greek is a manifestation, and theos is God. So a theophany is a manifestation of God, and an angelophany is an, a manifestation of an angel. So we have a theophany, and then two angelophanies. Basically, is what we have. All right, a manifestation of God and two manifesta- uh, manifestation of an angel, manifestation of an angel. And now, what we want to ask ourselves to be even more precise. So, if these angels, if angels are incorporeal beings. And they appear, and they, but they kind of like assemble themselves. They assemble an image of themselves, these material things. So also maybe God does the same. So maybe in a theophany, here's God, also because God is incorporeal, of course, and so He's assembling an image of Himself through some created matter of some sort. Mm-hmm. All right. Unless you want to be, and I don't think this is this is orthodox or that you can do it philosophically or any way. But uh, but there might be some people who say, well, no, 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 God has got a body or something like that. They want to say, no, this is not an assemble of anything. It's just this is God shown up, you know. Or or some people, some modern scholars think, well, Genesis is a very primitive book, and the ancient Hebrew mind is very primitive, so they kind of they took the angels to be like bodily beings. Okay, so that would be another approach. I mean, I don't think it's true, but some people might read it that way. Right. All right. So these are just different ways of thinking about it. When he, when he was getting the food ready for them, and he thought they were angels instead of men. Yeah, I yeah. I think he thinks yeah. there were men. that they were men. That they were men. Okay, so my interpretation is this: everybody, I think it was is really good, and I, I, I'm not saying I'm, I'm, you know, I'm absolutely right. You guys are wrong. No. But my, my take on it is this: okay, and I'm just following the tradition, and I've been persuaded over the years of reading these passages that this traditional interpretation is, is right. Is Abraham might have at first not really knew that they were that they were angels, um, and he thought they were men. And it actually, it, what if that's the case? It highlights his virtue because it's like we're to suppose that Abraham is going to treat with this much hospitality anybody who shows up at his tent. And in the ancient world, the hospitality was everything. It was one of the greatest virtues because, you know, we we have Seven Elevens and stop, you know, these side road stops and all this stuff. But if you are a nomad and you're wandering from you know one place to another across the desert, you really, really, your life depends on the hospitality of whoever you meet. So hospitality was a really big virtue in the ancient world. And uh, if anybody's familiar with the Iliad and the Odyssey. The whole war between the the Greeks and the Trojans begins over issues of hospitality, because um, uh, one of the princes takes in the, this queen and the king of another of the Trojan. I can't remember how exactly it goes, but anyways, he 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 runs off with the guy's wife, 
and it was considered an, not just that it was adultery, yes, but it was like this totally, totally terrible act of inhospitality. Uh, you know, so yes. so hospitality was a really big deal at the, in the ancient world. And so if Abraham is this great virtuous man, what we're learning here is that Abraham would treat anybody this way. But little by little, he begins to, to see that these are not just men. And he, he does begin to see that there's, this is God, this is, these are angels, these are angels representing God, maybe there are two angels in God, whatever it is. Okay, He starts to see there's more to it. Um, so, here we go here. Oh, I was going to go back. Another point here. So, one, one traditional take on that is this. If Abraham does think that these two, that these three people are real, just human beings, when he says, when Abraham, when Abraham says, "My Lord," maybe he's addressing like a central figure of the three. Okay, um, unless he's saying "My Lords," which is actually a possible interpretation, but it's less likely. So it's probably he is saying "My Lord," and if that's the case, then maybe he's addressing one of the three. Okay, that's that. That could be the case, but I, I would still say that it's possible that you see you've got two things going on. You've got what Abraham is doing and thinking, and then you've got what the narrator is doing and thinking. And the narrator might have a more of a bigger perspective on it than not. Maybe he definitely does. The narrator has a bigger perspective on it than Abraham. So that so the narrator very well could be taking Abraham's response and and basically uh, selecting it and placing it in such a way as to imply that my Lord in the singular is to be directed at all three of the men. And so that this is God being represented by three men. God, the one true God being represented by three men. That's a possibility. Okay, so that's just a possibility. And then it's good to know as well, this is a good opportunity to introduce you guys to the bottom line here. It says both the, this, this symbol LXX that stands for it's right of seventy, okay, in Latin, the Latin numerals, right? But it, it's it stands for the Septuagint. Septuagint is a very very ancient translation of the Old Testament into Greek, all right. So upwards of three hundred years before Jesus was born, the Old Testament, which is written in Hebrew, was translated into Greek by traditionally it was thought to have been translated by seventy Jewish interpreters. And so it was a very famous interpretation, translation of the Bible, and it was known as the Septuagint after the seventy men who translated it. And when the apostles, three hundred years later, after it was translated, when the apostles went out and preached to the Greek-speaking Roman world, they used the Septuagint. They didn't use the Hebrew Bible, okay? Because the the world at that time, its lingua franca was Greek. So that so Apostle Paul went out and he he wrote in Greek and he preached in Greek. And he would have used the Greek Bible, which was the Septuagint. So the Septuagint is very helpful to look at because you start to think, okay, what were the ancient Jewish uh, translators, how were they interpreting these passages? And then it says, so both the Septuagint and the VG, VG stands for Vulgate, okay? And the Vulgate was the translation that St. Jerome made, all right? So then a Christian church father uh, in around the year 400 AD, 400 years after Christ, made his own translation into Latin. And he used uh, Hebrew texts. So he translated from the Hebrew. And then the Septuagint also translated from the Hebrew. So it's, a, it's important to look at the Septuagint and the Vulgate to see how they interpreted the Hebrew. All right. Now, both of them interpret Adonai, this Hebrew word, in the singular. So you have Kurie, 
and then Domine. Now, who recognizes Curie? We say Curie, right? For it in our our Mass, Curie eleison, right? Lord have mercy. So Curie is Lord. Um, so they interpret it in the singular, and I think that there's a possible they they maybe were understanding that Abraham was speaking in the singular, but to three people. It's possible. Okay, so uh, here's another passage too. Now we go into the story of Lot, when the two two angels go to visit Lot, and we're in Genesis 19:18, and and Lot says, "Oh no, my lord." Lot said to them. So Lot speaks in the singular, but then it, the narrator says he's directing it at them, plural. Okay, so there's this thing of singular and plural going on at the same time. All right. Now, that's the New Jerusalem Bible translation. Translates Adonai in that context in the singular, my Lord. But I give you a little caveat there. Okay, so many modern translations, such as the Revised Standard Version, the New American Standard, probably the New American Bible as well, they translate Adonai in this passage as Lord's plural. Okay, so does your, uh, Tony, does your translation have that too? See, so you can, you know, I, I would, it would probably be too much time, but I, I would argue that the singular is probably the better translation, but it would be just too much time to argue that one. Um, but in any event, for sure, the NJB, the New Jerusalem Bible translation here into the singular is perfectly possible. And then moreover, if we reference our Septuagint and our Vulgate, we learn that both of them also translate that in the singular as well. So it's just helpful to see how the ancient Jewish and ancient Christian uh, translators, what, what they were thinking, how they were addressing this text. Right? We don't want to become uh, myopic just from our own time period, because all the translations we read are going to be have done within the past 50 years. You know, so we'd like to see what people from the past 2,000 to 2,300 years were, were thinking. Uh, okay, so now going back to the back to this uh, three men in Abraham. Abraham says, now this is my translation of the Hebrew, and I translate it weird and try to bring out the plural aspect of the second person plural. So in Genesis 18.5, I translate, I will bring a piece of bread that ye, meaning you all, okay, in English, modern English, contemporary English right now, we say you for both, when, we, when we're addressing the second person in both singular and plural. So I can say uh, you and I'm meaning all of you, or I can mean you, and I mean singular. So we, it's, it's ambiguous in our contemporary English. But I, that's why I use the old-fashioned English, which is not ambiguous. So ye is the second person plural, right? Oh, yeah, you're right. Okay. So we're on slide 6 of 34 right now. Um, so I will bring a piece of bread that ye may refresh the heart of you all. Again, strange translation, but I'm trying to bring out the... You know the actual uh, meaning of the Hebrew. After that, ye may go on, since ye have visited the servant of you all, your servant. All right. So, but I translated you all because it's, I'm bringing out the plurals in the Hebrew. Uh, and they said, so there's the plural. So do as you have said. All right. Now, um, the alternation between the singular and the plural is sometimes explained by identifying one of the three men as the master and the other two men as servants, the Lord and two angels. And that's that second interpretation that a number of you guys were thinking is good. And I agree, it seems like 
you know, it's got a lot to recommend itself to it, especially when... Literally. Yeah, especially when the two angels go off to Sodom, and and then the Lord, and then it says Abraham remains standing before the Lord, and then he's speaking with the Lord. So it does seem that like that. Um, <clears throat> but in eighteen five, uh, but eighteen five b is evidence against this because in it all three men agree to remain with Abraham. It's kind of weird. It's almost like they all speak in in unison. Okay, it's it's almost kind of eerie. Like think of the three guys speaking in unison. Go do as as you have said, and they all say it together. Like what? <laughs> it's almost like the Borg or something, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, if these three men were presented to us as a master with two servants, it would have been the master's prerogative to make this decision. You see, so it seems like these two angels are almost too equal with this person, the sing, the, the middle person who's supposed to be the Lord. It's like they're too equal with him for them to be. For them not to be all equals. Father, when you say the Lord, are you thinking of God, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus? Yeah, the Lord signifies the one true God. Right. Now, later on, we're, we are to understand through through further revelation that the one true God uh, is in three persons, and that's the mystery of the Trinity. So, when I say when I refer to the Lord, I'm not meaning just the Father. Well, what do you think Abraham? Because Jesus didn't come. There. Yeah. I think at this point that Abraham, and I take this historically, I think this, I mean, there's other scholars who think this is just all legend, but I mean, I think it's history. I mean, I think it's reporting real history, so I really believe Abraham existed historically. I really believe that these three men showed up to Abraham. I think probably initially he thought they were three men. Okay, but then little by little he began to understand that this is God, and I think he did have a prophetic understanding that this was, that, that God is a trinity. So, um, so 18 is evidence against this. Okay, if these three men were presented to us as a master with two servants, it would have been the master's prerogative to make this decision. All right. Now in Genesis 18, 9 through 10, then they said, so get the plural, they said to him, where is Sarah your wife? And he said, Abraham said, behold in the tent. And he, now we go back to the singular, God, said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife shall have a son. So you got this flip flop back and forth from the plural to the singular, and they and think of look at it. They all said to him, "Where is Sarah, your wife?" Think about three men all saying simultaneously, "Where is Sarah, your wife?" It's a little strange, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of weird, Zach. If it's the Lord, why are they not proper nouns? Why is it not capital P and capital they? That's just how you translate it. Okay. You know, different translations do it. You probably, if you read the King James Bible, it probably has capital mm-hmm. he. You know, and mine, I'm our, I don't have a pattern. So some, I think in some of my translations, I, I do a capital he for okay. God, and then other times not. And the Revised Standard Version, I think, uses a lowercase h. Uh, okay, so all three begin the mealtime conversation in uh, verse 9, but then one continues it in verse 10. So we've got, again, this mysterious interplay between three and one. That the three, okay, now this is a quote from a scholar named Von Rod. Uh, now these guys, I got, I'm drawing from uh, two scholars, Von Rod and Gunkel. They're both these German scholars from the early 20th century. And if you know Germans, they're extremely thorough in what they do. So these guys, they write huge about the volumes upon volumes upon volumes on this kind of stuff. And these guys are more, uh, they're, they're modern scholars, and they're more kind of on the edge of, like, I would, I would be much more theologically conservative than these guys, okay? 
And my understanding of how the Pentateuch was composed and put together would be much more kind of theologically conservative than these guys. But even these guys, who I would disagree with on many, many fronts, they believe that kind of the most primitive form of this story, as it was passed down through oral tradition, was, was, three, was three angels. And then at some point, in, its, in the process of this story being passed down through oral tradition and then eventually being written, it came to be the case that these three men were representing God. That's what both of these guys think. All right. Uh, so this is a quote from Van Rad. That the three men accepted the invitation together, verse 5b, if we were to think of the two as an honor guard to Yahweh. Now, Yahweh is a, is a name for the Lord, okay? I always use the, the word the Lord's. In Hebrew, it's these four consonants. God's name is these four consonants. yod Hey vav Hey. And we don't really know how it's pronounced, but some think that it's pronounced Yahweh, Okay? Now, I don't pronounce it Yahweh, even though I'm saying it right now. I don't say Yahweh for two reasons. Number one, because I think it's speculative that we don't know how to pronounce the what's called the Tetragrammaton, which is the name of God. I don't think we really know how to pronounce it. And then number two, more importantly, is that I think it's a ancient, ancient Jews, then those who translated the Septuagint, the Jews who translated the Septuagint translated it as Lord. They said Kurie. And our Lord himself, Jesus Christ, always would refer to Lord, Adonai. And all Jews... When they're reading in the synagogue right now, and the Jews go by the Tetragrammaton, they all say Adonai. They do not ever even attempt to say the sacred name. All right. So it's an act of, you know, it has to do with about taking God's name in vain. So what the Jewish people do is it's an act of reverence. They set up like fences around the, that commandment so they don't violate that commandment. It's a way of showing respect to God is by saying... Uh, and we do the similar thing, I think, with, our, with Jesus. Okay, so if you notice... Many uh, an older-fashioned way of referring to Jesus is by is by saying our Lord or the Lord, and you don't say the word Jesus. And if you ever were to say the, the word Jesus, you know you bow your head. You bow your head. So if you now now modern scholars when they write, they always use the word Jesus, 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 Jesus all the time. It's a little bit irreverent, you know. It's like Joe. It's like Buddy, you know, my buddy. It's like this guy, this historical figure, Jesus of Nazareth. You know, he lived two thousand years ago. Yeah, yeah, that guy. You know, where where the more religious kind of reverent way is saying our Lord or my or the Lord or okay. Uh, and so the the Jews would do the same thing with the sacred name of God, and they would say Adonai, and the high priest. In the, when, the, when the temple was still existing, the high priest would say the sacred name only once a year. Okay, He would pronounce it only once a year on Yom Kippur when he would go into the holiest, holiest of holies into the temple and he would make atonement uh, uh, by sprinkling blood on, on, the, on the mercy seat and he would pronounce the, the sacred name and that was only once a year. And I think to this day there's a tradition within Judaism that they have a way of pronouncing it, but no one, like literally no one knows what it is because it's passed down, like secretively. And they really have hidden it from the scholars. Like scholars really actually don't know how these how the Jews pronounce it, which is remarkable, because scholars investigate everything. So, uh, but in any event, um, you know, here you have Von Rod, and he's using the word Yahweh, okay, for the name of God, all right? But what I say is, we normally say the Lord, right? So if we were to think of the two as an honor guard to Yahweh, uh, okay, I'm sorry, that the three men accepted the invitation together, if we were to think of the two as an honor guard to Yahweh, would be just as strange as their common question about Sarah in verse 9. 
One is therefore rather inclined to think that Yahweh appeared in all three. This interpretation would coincide with the fact that where the text mentions Yahweh himself, it is singular, verses 10 and 13, for Yahweh is one in spite of this form of his appearing. So it's very interesting because these modern, and I would say even really kind of skeptical scholars, they their scholarship buttresses this third traditional interpretation that actually supports it. Uh, in a very interesting manner. <clears throat> so, uh, in Genesis 19, okay, we're on slide uh, 10 of 34 right now. Then the men said to Lot, we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So now here, okay, on one hand, you have a distinction between the angels and the Lord as the Lord has sent us to destroy it, right? But, if you think about it, you've got angels saying, we are about to destroy this place. Like, angels are going to destroy this place? Angels have power to call fire and brimstone down from heaven onto a city? That sounds like divine power. So you see, these angels are very, they're like representing God. I mean, they have an incredible amount of power to say, these are angels saying we're going to call fire and brimstone down on an entire city. Um And then we go on. uh, So the three men seized his hand, Lot's hand, and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him, upon Lot. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. So here are the angels having compassion on Lot, but it's saying the Lord is having compassion on Lot. So um, the point being that these angels are very, very representative of God. That's how they function as his representatives. So... My point is in Genesis 19, 13, and 16, the two men, they speak and they act as perfect representatives of the Lord. Their actions are the actions of the Lord. And then in Genesis 19, 21, and 24, which we'll see after this year, okay, because we're on slide uh, 11 right now of 34, one of the angels speaks and acts as if he himself were the Lord. And we'll see that. The narrator then goes on to seemingly imply that the Lord is on the earth in the angels as well as being in heaven. Okay, so now this is in the following slide here. So, and he said to him, Behold, I grant you this request. So this is one of the angels saying to Lot, I grant you, I grant you this request. So the angel has the ability to call the shots about what city is going to be destroyed and what city is not going to be destroyed. Because Lot says, Well, let me go to Zoar. Let me go to that the fifth of the, the fifth city of the five cities are going to be destroyed. Let me go to that one. Uh, and the angel says, Okay, I give you this. So the angel and God are like they're 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 like one almost. They're so unified. I grant you this request also not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. It's clear that it's the angel who has the who is bringing the fire and brimstone down on, on Sodom and Gomorrah. And then it says, the sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Okay, now that that was noticed a long time ago, even by Jewish interpreters. And the Jewish interpreters, who are not Trinitarians, said, hmm, what's going on here? The Lord is raining fire from the Lord. All right? So even the Jewish interpreters saw that and they... And some Jewish interpreters thought of like this kind of a, almost a, a they called it, a, you could call it a deuterostheos, which is like a second god. This kind of a, a vice region, a divine vice regions. Even the Jews, okay, totally apart from Christian influence, were thinking in terms of possibly God has got some kind of really exalted angel in heaven that's like his vice regents. 
and here is this vice regent now manifesting himself on earth, and he's called the Lord. And so the Lord is raining fire down from the Lord from heaven. Uh, but it, you can see how it fits very nicely into a Christian interpretation, into a Trinitarian interpretation. All right. So now we're on slide 13 of 34. Um, and uh, this is right at the end of our text, the main text that we're looking at. And it's uh, this is the Lord now speaking to himself. He's having an inner dialogue with himself. He says, I will go down now. I will go down. I will go down now. All right, And see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. Okay, now this is key. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Okay, now, on the one hand, you have it's, it seems like one of the three is the Lord and Abraham standing before him. But notice, though, read more closely. And I think this is the decisive text that kind of proves my point. It's, the Lord says, I will go down. And then it's the men, two of the men go down to Sodom. So it's the Lord going down in them. All three represent the Lord. All right? But since the Lord's um, omnipresent, couldn't he just have manifested in a bunch of different angels? And the person who's writing it is just trying to explain it? I think that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what I would be saying is that the Lord is actually manifesting himself in three angels. You know, three, three different angels. One of which stays and remains to have this kind of talk with Abraham, and the other two go. But here's the Lord saying, I will go down, but it's two angels that go. All right? And uh, what about this whole thing? Think about this. You know, the, I use this word anthropomorphism. Uh, the Old Testament uses anthropomorphic language about God, very human like language. So in the flood, if we can remember going back to Genesis 6, it says, it pained the Lord to the heart that he had created man on the earth. And he's like, oh, I'm so sorry that I created man. Now this is God. He's really acting like a human being who's changing his mind. I created human beings. Now I'm sorry I created them. What, what about God? Is he omnipresent or is he saying, I've I, I got to go down now? So God goes through, is he spatial? Does he go through space, right? So you, the answer to all those questions is no. God does not have any of those things, but the Bible portrays God in these anthropomorphic ways. And uh, in doing so, it's really an anticipation, what I, what I would argue. It's an anticipation of God actually becoming man in Jesus Christ. So, um, so you got this idea of God coming down. The Lord says that he will go down to Sodom. His intention is apparently not abandoned when the two separate from the one called the Lord before whom Abraham is standing in 1822b. Now, so my thesis is this. This is the third traditional interpretation. All three men together constitute a corporate representation of the Lord, with one of them merely having a greater representative role than the others. So that's how, how I would see it. And you're more than free to disagree with that. But you know, I'm putting together my case for you guys. Whether you buy it or not, it's a different story. So that's slide 14. Now we're on slide 15. Uh, what sells it for me is the New Testament's interpretation of the Old Testament. All right. So if we go to the New Testament, we've got all of these references to angels. Uh, let, let me phrase it this way. In the New Testament, we've got all these interpretations of angels of the Old Testament. And see how, see how it works. So St. Stephen, who was the first Christian martyr in the book of Acts, he's brought before the Sanhedrin, which is the same council before which the Lord Jesus was, was condemned. And he's put on trial. And uh, he gives this great speech. 
And his speech is salvation history. It's the economy of salvation from beginning to end, just like what we're doing in this class. So it's really interesting because you have this one page, it's in chapter 7 of the book of Acts, you have this entire uh, summary of salvation history from the mouth of a saint, and it's very interesting to see how he interprets it. And he interprets it, all, all the Old Testament texts, he interprets them very in a very Christological fashion. But how does St. Stephen interpret the Old Testament angel aphonies? It's very interesting. So St. Stephen says, Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him, meaning Moses, in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire, in a bush. So when you read in the Old Testament that the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush, Stephen <coughs> understands that as an angel appearing to Moses. But then it, you go to the passage in Exodus, and if it is an angel, the angel is saying, I am the Lord, and I have seen your, your sorrow and your suffering, and I have come down to, to save your people. And, the, and your cry of your people has come to me. It's a very amazing thing. Uh, another, another condescension of God, another sort of like pre-incarnation God coming down to live with his people who are suffering, to suffer, if you will, with them. And he's speaking in the first person, but it's an angel. Okay, at, at least according to Stephen's interpretation, which I take to be authoritative, because he's a saint and it's in the New Testament. Okay, So now going on in Stephen's speech, Stephen says this, this is he, Moses, who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at, at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. And he received living oracles to give to us. So more on the angel. All right, now, here's this is really the capstone for me. Acts 7.53, Stephen says, You who receive the law... Now, he's kind, of, he's kind of condemning the Pharisees who are judging him. Stephen says, You who receive the law as ordained by angels and did not keep it. And so what we have is this ancient Jewish and Christian interpretation of all the events on Mount Sinai and all of these different events that you read them and at first it says, it seems like it's just the Lord doing this. The Lord comes down on Mount Sinai in the midst of all of this fire and smoke and wind so forth and so on. But you've got this ancient Jewish and Christian interpretation that's saying this is all angels. This is the activity of angels that are doing this. So it appears like the Lord, but it's really angels who are doing this. So we understand the angels as representatives of, of the Lord. Uh, and also St. Paul himself in Galatians 3, verse 19. St. Paul says, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed, remember we're talking all about the seed, the promised seed, till the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was ordained by angels. The law was ordained by angels through an intermediary. That's Moses. Okay? Then we've got Hebrews, and the author of Hebrews, if it's St. Paul or if it's another another author, he says, For if the message declared by angels, and you kind of got to go to the context, you'll see he's talking about the law of Moses. For if the message, the Old Testament law of Moses, was declared by angels was valid, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And the great salvation is a reference to the gospel. So the author's contrasting the Old Testament law over against the gospel. The Old Testament law being given by angels, being ordained by angels. The New Testament law being directly given by God himself, incarnate. Okay, that's the contrast that the author of Hebrews is making. And then finally in Hebrews 13.2, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. 
I think it's a reference to Abraham. And it does seem like he's saying, at first at least, Abraham didn't know he was entertaining angels. All right? So that's slide 17. Now we're on slide uh, 18. So the next question to ask, if you guys are buying this so far, I don't know if you are or not. The next question to ask then would be, why did the Lord specifically choose three angels to represent him? <coughs> three angels represent him. Okay, of course, it's a very loaded question, right? I mean, I think it's a, it's a premonition or a pre-foreshadowing of the Trinity. Also, here's another question, very interesting. How many angels are actually named in the Old Testament? Given names. Because lots of times it just says angels or an angel of the Lord or the angel of the Lord. Three. Three. There are three angels named in the Old Testament. Anybody know their names? Gabriel, Raphael, Raphael. Yep. Michael. Michael. Yep. So yeah, Michael, Gabriel, and Raphael. So there's three angels that are actually given names in the Old Testament, in the biblical canon, the whole Old Testament. All right. Now there's an ancient Jewish interpretation that the three angels that visited Abraham were those three angels: Michael, Gabriel, and Raphael. All right. Now Gabriel is one of the three angels. Who else did Gabriel visit? Blessed Mother. Now think about. Okay, I'll, I'll keep going here. If, I, if you haven't bought it yet, I, I hope to hope to sell it to you. Okay. So if the Trinity is here revealed, though, this is only because the the incarnation is also revealed. So this is slide uh, 19 of 34. So the incarnation is also revealed. In Genesis 18.21, we've seen this before. We talked about it. It's right at the end of our text. God says, I will go down. All right. So you've got this condescension, God's condescension. And then Genesis 11.5 and 7... Remember, Genesis 11 is about the Tower of Babel. We went over that last week. All right, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And then this is God speaking. He says, come, let us go down. And there confuse our language. So here's God speaking in the first person plural. Let us go down. All right. So I, I think, again, the way to understand that is these are angelic beings who are coming down and they're investigating, so to speak, and they are then bringing judgment on the Tower of Babel. So just like it was angels who brought judgment down on Sodom and Gomorrah, it was judgments. It was angels who brought down judgment on the Tower of Babel. But in both cases, they were representatives of the Lord, authoritative representatives of God, the one true God. Father, can, can, we, can we go back? I want to ask yeah. you a question. Sure. To the one before. In 1821. No, the, the screen before. Oh, the screen before, okay. Could that the um, no that doesn't look like the where the, he was talking about the uh, do not okay do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers yeah could, could that be, be referring lots. more specific to Sarah because she didn't believe she was going to have a, a son she's serving these people yeah but. She's totally unaware of who they really are, and she's being as hospitable as she can to strangers. Yeah, but she's totally unaware of who they really are since they're saying so. It might be back when there's it might be Sarah, not Abraham. Meaning Abraham knows that these are angels, but Sarah might not. Correct. Okay, you know, sure. I think that's a possibility. Uh, I still kind of think that this is referring to Abraham because Abraham 
is the guy that gets up. He's kind of the main host in all of this. You know, he sees the three men. He runs. He bows down. Lord, my lord, what can I do for you? He goes. He says, "Sarah, cook that." Goes to the guy, slaughter the calf. He goes. The young man makes the milk, and he's doing all this kind of stuff. So Abraham is the one who is showing the virtue of hospitality, and I think that would be picked up by the author of Hebrews. But I mean, it's not impossible. Your your interpretation is not impossible. You know. So I don't want to be dogmatic about this because lots of times there's there's you know, there's room for a lot of different views on, on this. So, uh, I just want to point out again how the Lord comes down. It's very interesting. The condescension of God, He comes down. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. He doesn't move through space. He doesn't need to learn anything. Alright? So, this is using this kind of human language. Uh, again, I think it's there's this idea of God becoming man that's implicit in all of this. So, God will not judge or punish man except he himself. See, uh, Zach, if you notice, I capitalized he in that case. Okay, No rhyme or reason to it. It's just arbitrary. Oh, yeah, so this is slide uh, 20. So, God will not judge or punish man except he himself first condescends to identify with man and walk in his shoes. Only then does he consider that he has the right to judge man. Now, God has the right to judge man, period. Okay. But there's something very fitting where God is like, okay, until I walk a mile in the shoes of these people, I'm not going to judge them. All right? Again, God being the creator of the universe, he can do what he wants. But there's just something that's the nature of God and his compassion, his mercy, where he says, I'm going to, I'm going to walk a mile in their shoes before I pronounce judgment on them. So now we see John. Let's go to the Gospel of John. This is a very important text. So slide 21. This is a great quote from John. For as the, This is our Lord speaking. For as the Lord has life in himself, so has he granted the Son also to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Okay, so now traditionally you've got Son of God, Son of Man. These are two different titles of Christ. Son of God denotes his divinity. Son of man denotes his humanity. All right? Uh, now, actually, modern scholars try to actually reverse that, that equation, and actually, I think they're probably right in some respects, but in any event, there's still a way that the traditional understanding of those two titles is correct. And uh, it's no coincidence that our Lord is saying, because he is the Son of man, he has been given judgment. So God has given judgment to Christ. Christ has the right to judge because he was a man. He became man, 100%. He walked in our shoes. In the Old Testament, God walked in the shoes of men only by way of sort of, uh, in a, by way of almost allegory, okay, or picture, or image, or metaphor, or symbol. But in the New Testament, God really walks in the shoes of man. He really becomes a man. All right? So he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own authority. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Christ, in the incarnation, took up into himself a fully human nature with a body and a soul. And so Christ had a human intellect and a human will and a set of human emotions and passions and all of that. 
And so Christ's own human will was in perfect alignment with the, the divine will. And that's when, whenever you see two wills being spoken about, that's what's being talked about. It's, it's because Christ has a fully human nature, the human nature that was volitional in nature. And then there's the divine will. And so the human will was in perfect subordination to the divine will. So now we're on slide 22. So we see in Genesis 18, chapters 18 and 19, though, not only the foreshadowing of the incarnation as a means of judgment, okay, because the, so the incarnation is the means of judgment in, in, in one sense, okay, because, you know, God's not going to judge anybody unless he's walked a mile in their shoes, right? But we see the foreshadowing of the incarnation as a means of salvation and mercy, all right? So apart from Genesis 32, 22 to 32, there's no passage in the entire Old Testament like Genesis 18, 1 through 22 that depicts God in such starkly anthropomorphic terms. Nothing in the Old Testament compares. The only one that's comparable is when God shows up to Jacob and has a wrestling match with him. Okay, so God wrestles Jacob in the middle of the night. And it's really, that's another passage where it's like, wow. I mean, it's really, really anthropomorphic. It's like, uh, at some point, God says to Jacob, you're a really good wrestler. Could you just let me go right now? I'm getting really tired at this point. And Jacob says, I'm not going to let you go until you give me a blessing. And he says, okay, okay. So it's it's really, really anthropomorphic. It's almost like an incarnation. But apart from that passage, this passage that we're reading about in Genesis 18 is the most anthropomorphic passage in the entire Old Testament. And in fact, it's more than that. This is my next point here. In fact, there is no parallel to the anthropomorphic realism of Genesis 18 in all ancient literature. Nothing that even parallels it. Okay, so there's a there's a scholar by the, a Jewish female Jewish scholar by the name of uh, oh what's her name now I, I can't remember her name I got it all I got a bibliography at the end though if you're curious but anyways there's a, a Jewish scholar who does a review of all of this ancient literature to to make this point and this is her point one of her many points. And so she goes to this Ugaritic literature, which is basically like a Canaanite literature. She goes to Mesopotamia literature. She goes through Sumerian literature. And she goes through ancient Greek literature. And there's nothing that's parallel to to Genesis 18 in terms of anthropomorphism. So, for example, in the Ugaritic and Mesopotamia literature, the gods, they might be depicted anthropomorphically, realistically, but only when they're interacting with one another. Only when they're up in... You know, the heavens and they're battling each other and chasing each other's wives and all that kind of stuff. Only when the pagan deities are doing that do, are they portrayed in really human terms, okay? You know, they're sitting at table, they're drinking, you know, in one of the, in one of the stories, the Ugaritic stories, the Canaanite stories, the god El, who is the god, the father god of all the other gods, he gets drunk and he passes out at a, at a feast. Okay, so very anthropomorphic. But it's only in relation to one another, never in relation to human beings are they portrayed anthropomorphically. Okay? And that's the same with uh, Mesopotamian literature. And then in the Sumerian literature, the, the deities are portrayed in, terms of, in human terms on earth, but still not in, reaction, not in interaction with other human beings. Okay? With, with, with human beings. And then finally, in Greek literature, if anybody's a fan of the ancient Greek literature, I've read a lot of it myself because I was an English teacher. Uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey, we find the gods regularly appearing as men. So in the Greek literature, the gods always show up as men and they fight on behalf of the Trojans or on behalf of the Greeks or whatever. But there's always something 
that lets everybody know that they're a god, like, oh, look how that guy fights. Oh, he's a god. Yeah, we know he's a god. Or look how that guy walks or something. You know, oh, yeah, he's a god. Or, you know, maybe there's something missing. Like, he's got, he's wearing something that they, they oh, yeah, that, that lets everybody know that he's a god, all right? So in Greek literature, we find gods regularly appearing as men, but not in such a realistic fashion that they might go unrecognized. There are always a number of external characteristics that distinguish them as gods. So, this is the scholar's point. The phenomenon of anthropomorphically realistic theophany as a mode of divine human communication is not reflected in ancient pagan literature. This is a specifically biblical phenomenon. And that, that is really what's remarkable about the Bible as a whole, is that it's God speaking to human beings in history. All the pagan religions have huge stories about the gods talking to one another, battling to one, battling with one another, and these kinds of battles and love affairs and all these things that take place with the gods are like a way that we can understand why storms happen or why uh, you know a crop gets burnt down or why a certain famine takes place or whatever. But it's it, these are the gods that are just talking to each other and they don't really care about humans too much and they don't really enter into history. But the God of the Bible enters into history. He reveals himself in history through different prophets to the people of Israel. And he's very much interested in himself coming down into history. And it's always portrayed this way. Let us go down. Let us see. Let us do these different things. And then finally, of course, we have the incarnation when God himself actually becomes a man. So that was slide 24. Now we're on slide 25. So the hospitality that all three men receive involves the washing of feet and the eating of a meal. Very, very physical, you know, very human. And then I say compare, you know, uh, to the Last Supper, right? When God visits Abraham to announce to him the birth of the son, now this is the key here. What is the whole promise? What's, what is the whole thing that the, the angels want to tell Abraham? That Sarah's going to have a son. Who's that son? Isaac. Isaac is the seed through whom the seed is going to take place. So that, that, that promised messianic seed is going to come through Isaac. So when God visits Abraham to announce to him the birth of the son through whom the promised messianic seed will be realized, he does so under the appearance of a man. Will this messianic seed be God made man? That's for you to decide. <laughs> so then we go back to the we go to the Annunciation in Luke, and this is I just wanted just two verses, but to show you how one follows the other. Luke is following uh, Genesis eighteen. So the Annunciation in Luke, in which God actually becomes man, because as soon as Mary says her fiat, as soon as she says, "Let it be done to me," God God became, becomes incarnate in her womb. So. In which God, uh, this Annunciation in Luke enables us to interpret the Annunciation of Genesis 18 with a fuller understanding. So, if we look in Genesis 18, we have no no word. And now, I'm, this is a very literal interpretation. No word is impossible with God. Rema. Rema is word. Now, it can be also translated thing. No thing. No issue. No matter. Okay, so nothing is impossible with God. But a really literal translation would be, no word is impossible with God. And notice I'm drawing from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. All right, Because that's probably what Luke would have been reading when he was writing his scene of the Annunciation. And so Luke has 
And there's not much difference between the two phrases. Luke just uses a future tense of not able. All right, so no word will be impossible with God. Very interesting. Just to show you how Luke is following the Genesis account. So that's slide 26. Now I'm on slide 27. Now, did the three men really eat? Okay, so now we get... So do you, do you see how... I don't know if you, if you bought it or not, but I'm trying to show you that how the Trinity is foreshadowed in this scene and how the Incarnation is as well. If you don't buy it, it's okay. I do. So uh, the further question we want to ask, though, is this a very kind of funny question, but it, it's relevant, though. It's relevant. Did the three men really eat? No. No, they didn't eat? Okay, what happened then, Charlie? Well, I'm just... I'm relating it to a, to a different part of the what part of the Bible are you really uh, into? Tobias. Ah, there we go. That's exactly what I want you to do. That's exactly what I want you to do. That is what's called reading the Bible biblically. Okay? Every text interprets another text. Do never be afraid to go to another book to interpret another book. Okay? Very good. Yes, exactly. With Ray said. Yeah. So, so now the angel, Raphael, shows up to, uh, to Tobias, the Tobit's son. And it's a very cute, it's a very charming story, and it's a romance. It's a very nice story. In many ways, it's very kind of funny too, and cute in a lot of ways. But anyway, so Raphael shows up, and he's this supposed to be this distant relative, and he's going to lead uh, Tobias on this odyssey, this big journey. They go, and they come across this fish, and the fish jumps out of the water, is going to attack Tobias, and then the and Raphael, who's who's, who's disguised as Arias, I think his name or something, he grabs the fish and he kills it. All right, and uh, and then he takes its guts and he puts it in his bag and he stores it in his bag or something like that. Right. Um, and then he goes and he uses that as a, as a an, like an exorcistic uh, incense to like uh, scare away Asmodeus, the demon who's been killing all the grooms of Sarah. Anyway, but in that whole fishing incident, they eat fish together. So Raphael is sitting down with Tobias eating fish with him. Now, you, do, you just kind of go, there's a like dramatic irony because the reader knows that this is an angel, but the Tobias doesn't know that it's an angel, and so we might be wondering how is how is Raphael eating this fish? And you know you don't know, but at the end it's revealed. So Raphael reveals himself at the end of the story. He says, "I am Raphael, the angel, and I've been with you and I've done these things, so forth and so on." And he says, "All of these days I merely appeared to you and did not eat or drink, but you were seeing a vision, right? So it was just and it was just an appearance, right? Because." Angels are not corporeal beings, and so they they really cannot eat because eating is an organic process. It requires a, a real organic being to bodily being to do that. So what happens now? I think I've read some Jewish interpretations where Michael is up in heaven, and Michael says to the Lord, "You want me to go down and have dinner with Abraham? I'm an angel. I can't eat with him." And the Lord says. Uh, my power will be with you, as it is written, the Lord is a consuming fire. And so the idea is like, this angel is going to be t- taking this food and bringing it to his mouth, and then this power of God is going to be burning up the food as he, as he eats it, all right? <laughs> so here's Josephus. Here's another ancient Jewish author. It's very interesting to read these guys. So Josephus was writing about the year 90. All right, so very close to the time of the apostles. Really, the apostolic age hadn't, hadn't really come to an end. And it was, it was not long distance away from the, the, our Lord's earthly ministry. And so here's Josephus writing. 
And uh, this is how Josephus uh, interprets Genesis 18. Abraham saw three angels, and thinking them to be strangers, he rose up and greeted them, and desired that they would accept of uh, accept that they would accept of an entertainment. I, I think that's a misinterpretation or a mistranslation or something. That they would accept some entertainment and abide with him. To which, when they agreed, he ordered cakes of meal to be made presently. And when he had slain a calf, he roasted it and brought it to them as they sat under the oak. Now they made a show of eating. He also makes the point that they really didn't eat, okay? So all the different rabbinic sources also agree that the three angels did not eat. Now this is how they reason. This This is very profound. It's kind of funny, but it's actually profound at the same time. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai for how many days? Is he there for the first time? He's up there for 40 days, and he neither eats nor drinks. Which is a miracle, okay, especially now that I'm drinking. You can't, you can't go without water for 40 days. You can't go without water for 8 days. I think you're dead after 8 days. <coughs> so a miracle takes place to sustain Moses, all right, to sustain his life. But the idea is that when he's going up to Mount Sinai, he's entering into heaven. He's going into heaven. And so the rabbis say, well, looks like you don't eat in heaven. And so angels don't eat. That's, so that's how, they, that's how they reasoned, okay? So, and then also the church fathers stressed that the angels did not really eat. Just as the angels only appeared to be men, so also they only appeared to eat. Okay. Now, all of this is why, uh, the point here in all of this is that these figures in the Old Testament were just that. They were figures. They were symbols pointing to a reality that they were not. They were not the reality, but they were pointing to a reality. And that reality is, is Jesus Christ who is God, really become man, really become flesh. Um, And so we have finally, this is the final slide, slide 30. So here's Luke. Now our Lord is raised from the dead, and they don't know maybe he's a spirit. Okay, maybe he's a ghost. And so he says, and while they still disbelieved for joy and wondered, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him, what did they give him? A fish. All right? And he took it and ate it before them. So he's demonstrating to them that he is not just an appearance, but that he's he's doing an organic act. He's really alive. All right. And I think actually this is actually probably a reference to Tobit. I think there's an allusion to Tobit here. And in fact, there's another passage where Raphael says, "I am ascending to our God and to, to your God and to my God." And then in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, Do not hold on to me, for I am ascending to my God and to your God. So he actually... So the Gospels have Tobit in the background, and I think this is another another way that they have Tobit in the background. Well, we still got about 15 minutes, and so uh, for our next and final session on Abraham, we can read Genesis 12 and Genesis 22. All right, read 12 over again, because we haven't... Um, we haven't. We never get through. We didn't get through all of it last time. We were. I wanted to get through all of it. We didn't. Is it just twelve and twenty-two, or twelve through twenty? No, no, no. Just twelve and and twenty-two. So first, you know, so chapter twelve, but really just the first few verses of twelve, just to review that, that initial promise of blessing to Abraham, and then uh, Genesis twenty-two, which is called the binding of Isaac. It's when Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac. Now. Um, there's more I could talk about here. We've got about 15 minutes left, and I could speak about 
how it's so important that Jesus Christ is real flesh, has really become man. All right? And in the ancient world, it's it's kind of hard for us to understand this because we really are a Christianized society. In, in many ways, and I've preached on this before, we're living, Western civilization is a post-Christian society, and I, I would be willing to argue that on many fronts. But still, though, there's all of these Christian ways of thinking that are in, in, embedded in us. Okay, and one of the ways, the Jewish and the Christian ways that's embedded in us is that everybody, even the most secular humanist, would hold that the body is a good thing. People don't think the body is a bad thing. People think generally the body is a good thing. No one's against the material world. No one thinks the material world is evil. Okay, we just take that for granted. Everybody thinks like that. In the ancient world, that wasn't the case. In the ancient world, it, it met for, for people who were, were very spiritual, material was evil. It was bad. Physicality was evil. It was the, the root and the seed of, of darkness and evil. Um, and what was good was this kind of tra- uh, transcendence from the material and from the matter. And, you know, the soul was imprisoned in the body. The body was like a prison. And the soul was the good part of man. And the body being destroyed, it would release the soul, and the soul now is free to be to exist in its true state as a spiritual existence. All right? So, and many religions still kind of think like this. Uh, I mean, Hinduism, in a certain sense, really operates like this. For the Hindu, uh, the material world is um, the fact that you know we have these passions and emotions and this distinction between this, between Charlie and me, that we're different people and we were individuals and we're one body here and another body there. All of that is an illusion. And really, the material world is just this kind of uh, a shadow of this divine consciousness, this singular divine consciousness. And if you have bad karma, you're condemned to be incarnated in another body. And you're going to continue to be incarnated in another body until you're liberated. All right, And you become one with this kind of divine consciousness. And if you're really bad, you become incarnated in even a lower body, or a lower caste system. You, know, you go down the caste systems, and then you go to animals and plants. So it was the, so plants, animals, and the caste system is a way of imprisoning people, imprisoning the soul. The soul needs to be liberated and get out of that. Ancient Greeks thought that way. The, the Platonists thought that way. And then this kind of Platonistic mindset comes into a stream of Judaism and kind of corrupts a stream of Judaism, and this stream of Judaism starts to give birth to all these uh, kind of heretical and unorthodox streams of thought and theology. And then some Christians kind of pick up this stuff. And then a lot of Christian heresy starts to take place. Okay, So one of the most uh, foundational Christian heresies was something we could call Gnosticism. All right? Gnosticism uh, was, the, was the understanding that basically the God... The true God of Jesus Christ, the Father of the Son, was this very exalted, transcendent being who had nothing to do with the creation of the world. Okay, And the creator of the world was this lower deity. And this lower deity came into existence as a result of like a, a divine accident. And this lower deity was, was, kind of, was either a deity of pure justice and not love, or even a deity of evil. Uh, an evil deity, uh, even Satan. 
And so the Gnostics began to actually interpret the Lord in the Old Testament as this kind of evil angel who created the world. And so the world, the material world, was evil. And so if Christ, because then they, so they, this is their thinking, and then Christ, they appropriate the person of Jesus Christ into their system. So Jesus, therefore, could not have really become flesh because it would be beneath him. This is some kind of exalted spiritual being. He's not going to become a man. That's not worthy of him. So, And he's not really going to suffer on the cross because that's what human beings do. So when Jesus suffered on the cross, it only appeared that he suffered. Okay, There was only an appearance. He only appeared to be a man. Now this ancient Gnostic thinking is being combated in the New Testament by the, God, by the apostles. So John says, if anybody denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, he is the Antichrist. So this is one of the most ancient heresies and it's being combated in the Bible itself. And John in particular, because he's writing at the end of the first century when Gnosticism was, very, was starting to get a lot of ground, John writes the whole gospel, the fourth gospel, as a counter to Gnosticism. And so he says, in the beginning was the word... And the Word became flesh. And so it's a, a very strong affirmation that God took up into himself a fully human nature, body and soul, rationalities, passions, everything. And he really suffered. And so John continues in his first epistle and he says, This is he who came by water and by blood, not by water only, but by water and by blood. And what he's speaking about there is the Gnostic, there's Gnostic thinking at that time that was saying this. Jesus at his baptism was just a man. There's just a man that went to become baptized and then when the Holy Spirit comes down upon him, that's this kind of exalted eternal divine being called the Christ that was different from the man Jesus. So the Christ is a distinct thing from the man Jesus. And the Christ floats down and lands basically and kind of takes up an abode on this man, but then when the man's at the cross, the Christ leaves him. And that's where you, and this is how they interpret the text where Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, so it's it's a clever interpretation, but deeply and profoundly heretical. (laughs) Profoundly heretical because it's a denial that God actually became man and that God actually suffers. And so John is saying, he came not only by water, meaning at the baptism, but by water and by blood. And so he suffered on the cross. And that was another reference when the spear goes into Christ's side, both water and blood come out. So uh, all of this is very, very relevant because in effect what was happening is the ancient Gnostics were interpreting Jesus as if he was an Old Testament angelic figure, that he only appeared to be a man, like Raphael who only appeared to eat. All right, or like these three angels who only appeared. But they're missing the whole point, and they're bringing us back to the Old Testament dispensation because the Old Testament dispensation is just a figure of a reality. It's the shadow of a body. The Old Testament's the shadow. The New Testament's the body. The Old Testament's the figure. The New Testament's the reality. And so as soon as you erase that reality, you're contravening the whole telos and purpose of the Bible and the entire foundation of Christianity. So that's just kind of like more dimensions to show how this is very, very relevant. And you guys, some people might think, well, these Gnostics are bizarre. What are, you, what are they saying? And, and you know, I, I could get into Gnosticism for a long time and talk about how they're actually, there's a kind of a subtleness to it. 
there's a certain advantage. So, for example, if you were a Gnostic, the and we, we, I'm sorry, sir, what was your name again? As. I'm sorry. As. As. As and I last week were speaking afterwards of uh, what is known as the problem of evil, and this ha- it, we encounter this almost every day. And as a priest, I encounter it all the time, all the time. It, it's if God is good and He's in control of everything. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good people suffer? I can understand if a bad person suffers, okay, there's some kind of justice there, but why a baby suffering, like baby hasn't done anything wrong, why is a baby getting killed in a hurricane? Is that, well, if you're a Gnostic, you've solved the problem. God's not responsible for any of that. We, we worship a God who's so transcendent, he's got nothing to do with this evil world. Yeah, you're right, the world's evil, but that's because it was created by an evil God. You see, they solved the problem of evil, just like that. So there was a lot of there's a lot of things to Gnosticism that made it very attractive. It appealed to the ancient Greek mind because right off the bat, the Greeks, because of their philosophical position, kind of already uh, depreci- had a depreciated view of matter and an exalted view of spirit. And uh, so it was very attractive to the ancient mind. It was very very had a very strong, powerful stronghold. And the ancient Catholic theologians had to combat Gnosticism for hundreds of years, hundreds of years. And one religion that came about in the third century, which was kind of Gnostic in spirit, was called Manichaeism. And one of the ancient, one of the fathers who I use as a guide and who's really kind of guiding us along through this whole thing. Oh, by the way, I'll show you. Okay, so here's the sources. Who's my first source? Saint Augustine. Okay. So, so uh, one of the ancient church fathers. Uh, so this ancient religion, this ancient false religion, started by a, a prophet by the name of Manes in Persia. It's called Manichaeism. Now there was an ancient church father who was a Manichae when he was a young man, and he talks all about it in the confessions, in his confessions. Who am I talking about? St. Augustine. Okay. So if you read, I very, very much encourage you to read St. Augustine's Confessions. It's a fascinating, fascinating book. And uh, he... he, he Charts his journey, his spiritual journey. He was born to his, his mother's Catholic, Saint Monica's Catholic, uh, you know. But he was kind of a uh, kind of a, a wiseacre and maybe a smart ass or whatever when he was a kid. And he, he goes and he joins the Manichees, and he's a Manichee from the time he's 18 to the time he's 28. And he studies himself out of the Manichees. He eventually sees that the Manichees are wrong, but at first he embraced them. And uh, one of the things with the Manichees is, is, is Christ did not become flesh. And so Augustine then sees through that eventually and he becomes one of the strongest defenders of both the Trinity and the Incarnation. So um, this, I, this Gnostic mentality was relevant all the way up into the 4th, the 5th, the 6th centuries. Eventually it died off. But then it, was, it resuscitated again in the Middle Ages and there was actually crusades against uh, the Cathars in southern France in the Middle Ages. The Catholic princes all did crusades against these, these Cathar princes in the south of France, and they basically were Gnostics. And Gnosticism recently has enjoyed a, a, a pretty strong revival, so there are people who are actually practicing Gnostics right now. Um, but more than the actual practicing Gnostics, we have a, a deeper issue about the human person and the role of the body in the human person. And this is where St. John Paul II comes in with his theology of the body. And he lays out a very crisp uh, uh, and very, very profound and well-developed moral theology that affirms the goodness of the human body 
and uh, has incredibly important consequences for all aspects of the individual life and, and civilization. So we've got yet one more saint who defends the, the, the orthodox understanding of matter and spirit and the incarnation and all of that. So, uh, Any thoughts, uh, closing thoughts or anything? Contributions, dis- disagreements, angers? No, you're all happy? This is actually quite eye-opening. Confused? Did I confuse you? Was it the Gnostics? The the one thing with the Gnostics, Paul, when you said, um, you know, that, uh, I mean, when the Holy Spirit came down, yeah. yeah. They believe that's where Christ came in. Both Christ is distinct. So, but now, my question was: Was Ben Cana happy prior? The wedding they came in was prior to the baptism. When he changed the water to wine. I don't think so, actually. But, 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 but it's more. Mother, mother said it's time to start. Wasn't it? Did it stop Cana? Was Cana? You know, that's I'm just saying. No, it was his first miracle. Okay. Oh, okay, that would be good. Yeah, that would be. If that's the case. You know, yeah, let's look at that. Let's right? look at that. It's John chapter 2. That's a good question. Yeah, that would be a good counter argument. Yeah, you see, look, in, no, I don't think so, because in John chapter 1, 129, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so this is the interaction with John the Baptist. Uh, I, for this reason I came back to revealed. And John bore witness that I saw the Spirit descend as a dove from heaven. Lesson chapter 1 and then in chapter 2 he had So I think it happened. That would have been a good argument. Though, yeah. Um, so let's see though how, how we could argue that though. Uh, well, that was that's the you know, you could you could, you could here, here's a here's a promising here's a promising 